0: Ladies and gentlemen, this is this is The Real Mission Impossible show with your host,
1: Khushanjit. Are you ready?
0: We search the globe for the most amazing people who have overcome incredible obstacles, demonstrated amazing resilience, done the impossible. I said, are you ready? Join, Join the real, real coach MJ, MJ on the Real Mission Impossible Show. Meeting legends from Dubai, South Africa, Nairobi,
1: New York, London, wherever they are to make it possible for the Real I'm Possible with Coach MJ. The real Mission I'm Impossible show starts in Let's, four.
0: Let's Count Down Together.
1: Five, four, four, three, three, two, two, one. 1, Boom.
0: Welcome everyone to Mission I Impossible. I'm your host, Coach MJ. Today we'll be speaking to one of the first fast jet fighter pilots. In the UK. She's become an author, she is a motivational speaker, and she just published a book, I'm an Officer, Not a Gentleman. Please welcome Mandy Hickson.
1: Hey, thank
0: you very much. What an intro. I love that. Thank you. So Mandy, uh, obviously I've got a few questions I'm going to ask you today. I have plans for you. I'm so honored to have you with us on this side of the pond because I noticed what a fan base you already have in the UK. I was astonished. A single post on LinkedIn, it looked like a whole tribe uh, responded. It's, it's amazing.
1: I think it's had over 25,000 views within 24 hours.
0: Yeah, I mean, it crazy. was around well. But you know what? I mean, I personally became a fan as soon as I found out just a little bit about you. And the more I got uh, introed into your uh, back story, I'm just amazed, and again, I'm so flattered, to happy to have you, but we want to hear your story, and so today, I'm just going to ask you a little bit about where you grew up, because I know that you referenced in your book and some other interviews about your grandparents, your grandfather in particular, being in the World War II, and there was some connectivity there about inspiring you to go forward. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved, and why did you
1: decide to be a pilot? Why would you not, is the answer to that question. But, um, you know, so I grew up uh, in the north of England um, and I grew up listening to stories of my grandfather. As you say, he was a Second World War fighter pilot. And you know what? When you're young and you're so uh, ready to absorb all these fantastic stories and they drip feed into you, like this osmosis. And so I remember I was sitting there at home. I was about 13 years old. And my mum was reading the local paper and she sort of read this article about the fact there was a club. Uh, You have a similar thing in the States, basically, uh, for youngsters that want to get into the military, uh, a cadet programme. And uh, it was opening its doors to girls for the first time. And she said, why don't you join? And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. But I had this massive crush on Tom Selleck at the time in Magnum P.I. I don't know if you remember our wonderful Magnum.
0: A well, red Ferrari in, in Hawaii. That's all I remember.
1: What you know, what and, was there not to love? Yeah. But he used to have this show, uh, Magnum, is on Tuesday evening. So when she said, there's this club and it's starting, it's on a Tuesday, I thought, mm, I want to watch Magnum. And she said, but they do flying. And I was like, yeah, that sounds interesting. And she said, Mandy, you go to an all girls school. It'll be full of boys. And I thought, oh, now that does sound interesting. And that's why I joined actually. So um, it was while I was there that I flew. And I, Absolutely loved it. Literally, the second my feet left the tarmac, I just thought I want to make this my career. But women weren't allowed to be pilots at the time. So that was pretty challenging.
0: Wow. So again, you 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 got interested, and then you saw, well, there's already a barrier, there's already a point of resistance. Why bother? Where's Tom?
1: Yeah, where's Tom when you need him? Absolutely. To swing in and whip me off my feet. Yeah, but I certainly didn't give up. And at the age of 17, I was awarded a flying scholarship. Uh, Interestingly, when I went down for the medical, I was told I had an obesity problem, which was fascinating because their height charts for women only went up to about five foot eight. And I'm six foot tall. I'm a really tall, tall lady. And they said, oh, well, I did a couple of pounds on. But basically it means that you're about three and a half stone overweight. Well, I was thinner then than I am now. And... To be told I had an obesity problem was quite shocking, especially when you're 16 years old. But I lost my three and a half stone. I didn't challenge the system. I just accepted it for the norm. And uh, I finally got my scholarship. And um, from that, it gave me the ability to get my private pilot's license with money saved up from newspaper rounds. Can you believe it? And then I went off to university. And I was in my second year at uni when they changed the rules, allowing women to join. So I'm just going to change that blind. Is that okay? Sorry.
0: Sure, sure, sure. Uh, because, you know, you've you've had situations where you've had to fly in the blind, but there's no reason why we can't do what we want to do on my show.
1: Absolutely. Why be stoned? Absolutely. Blinded by the sunshine. <laughs> and blinded by the
0: light. uh, yeah. Mandy, uh Tell us, uh, for, for by the way, for all the viewers and listeners who are not from the UK, uh, Mandy said that she lost three and a half stung. Could you... Break that down for us in pounds. Do you know mm, how many pounds? You know this? That's
1: going to be 28, 38, about 42, no, 47 pounds.
0: Wow. <laughs> that's quite a journey. That would have won you an award here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And when you're 16 years old and you're already quite thin, you know, that was really shocking. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so you must have been a rail going in.
1: I was, yeah. In fact, that photo behind you, you can see um, one of the ones when I'm really young, you know that was the weight I was. So yeah, to be to be told this, you know, it's it was quite devastating at the time. Yeah. But you know what? It was just another hoop I felt I had to jump through.
0: Yeah, because I mean, first of all, you're told basically women are not going to be able to do this. Um, oh yeah, and you're oh, you have an obesity issue, so there's another thing. And uh, you're a Tom Selleck fan. That's three strikes, you're out. That's-
1: about exactly what, what more could you want but it was interesting actually because I was at university and they changed the rules uh, about women flying on the front line in my second year and the timing was perfect so I applied to join and then I failed all the tests to be a pilot I thought hold on a minute there's your strike four um yeah completely and utterly and you're allowed to take them twice so I waited a year I went back in my final year and I sat them all again and failed them all again and you're only allowed to do these twice so Really, that should have been me out of the equation completely by then.
0: Oh, goodness. So, and the, these tests, because we, we don't really know, were, were they practical tests or were these academic yeah. tests?
1: They were a mixture, basically, about four hours on a computer um, designed to test everything from your hand-to-eye coordination, your mental aptitude, uh, your decision-making, situational awareness, memory skills, all of these different attributes. And... Yeah, there's only, you can only take them twice, mainly because there doesn't want to be a learning involved in that. And they feel if they did them more than that, people would learn the skills. So when I failed them the second time, I was told that I couldn't go any further. But that's when really you need to have other people that believe in you. And I'd been flying while I was at university as part of a club run by the RAF. A boss of that squadron just couldn't understand why someone that had proved herself to be a really capable pilot apparently had no aptitude as far as computer programs were concerned. So he basically went the extra mile for me. And um, we fought the case. I got taken on as an air traffic controller. I wrote hundreds of letters. He was on the case. He involved higher ranking officers as well. And eventually I got a letter back saying, we'll give you your branch change to pilot. And I've never been so delighted as you can imagine.
0: (laughs) Wow, what resistance you had to go through to get there.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So those weren't just clouds, those were walls and yeah. traditions also that said, yeah. no, we had your second chance, we gave you a shot, we know you're a woman, but still we tried, you're done.
1: Yeah, I was very lucky. I, and I think actually it's, it's a lesson that's, you know, actually held me in really good stead for life that, you know what, we do need people to believe in you. And as we go through life, we can actually give that gift to other people. And that's something that I've really, really made sure is part of the center of everything that I do since leaving was... To empower youngsters to really believe in themselves and actually for other people to believe in them as well and it makes a monumental difference in people's development
0: oh gosh absolutely so and you obviously experienced that and today are you able to speak to to youth groups to you make that part yeah. of your blended around the year
1: yeah absolutely so i'm i speak to schools an awful lot uh, i also speak to organizations in fact someone from texas just reached out and said i've got this uh summer camp i'm wanting to run for youngsters who are interested in aviation would i be able to do a an online session for them you know and that sort of thing is fantastic because it's all about igniting a spark and it's all about that self-belief that if you can just get people to start thinking a little bit differently about themselves but also about different roles that are available and to really crush down these gender stereotypes and cultural stereotypes to say you know what? These jobs are available to anybody. And it doesn't matter what your background, where you're from. If you want it enough and you're willing to work hard enough, you can get there.
0: Mandy Hickson, preach it. I believe. Oh,
1: yeah, absolutely. I'm all over it. You're <laughs> awesome.
0: Right in your backdrop. I'm reading your backdrop and it's really cool. Dream it, believe it, and, and then do it. it. Yeah,
1: Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's a philosophy that's kept me really online because I was just that young girl with this dream. But if I hadn't believed in it and others had not believed in me, then I would have gone nowhere. But how many times do people not actually put it into action as well? So it was interesting. I was invited to go to Kilimanjaro not that long ago. And I sort of went, oh, I'm never going to be able to fit that into my life. I've got children. You know, I'm doing a lot of speaking all over the world. Oh, and I sort of said no. And this girl went, Mandy, dream it, believe it and do it. And I went, oh, if you're going to preach my own motto back at me. Best I get off my uh, backside and put it into action. So I did. I climbed Kilimanjaro.
0: Mandy Hicks has just name dropped Kilimanjaro. It's like
1: boom. <laughs> Done
0: that. Awesome. Tell me, Wendy, what you know when you you got in? Were the guys the boys' club? Were they embracing you and saying, "Come on, we give you all the help you need from day one"?
1: Yeah. Well, it was interesting because the guys I went through flying training with became a band of brothers. They we were so close. They were literally my family, and we were together for about three and a half years, going through all the different training programs. Uh, I had a lovely evening once when I well, it wasn't a lovely evening at the time because I was about to fail fast jet training and the pressure was immense. I was so stressed and I was failing continuously this same flight. And I was told that I had my chop ride the following day. And if you don't pass this flight, you're out. And I was thinking, oh, I was three trips away from getting my brevet, eh? you know, my, my big wings. And I thought, I can't believe this, everything I've worked for. And the, the trip I'd failed, I'd... um it was basically a low level trip and you've got to be flying with a wingman in formation. There's an enemy airborne that's trying to shoot you down. They're also called our instructors, by the way. Um, And they're trying to get behind you into six o'clock position. And basically it means that you must coordinate your turns because you can't see behind you. So if you're a singleton, you're guaranteed to almost fail. I mean, I can start quoting Top Gun at you if you like, but what is it they say? Never leave your wingman. But, actually it's so true because I can see all the way around him and vice versa but if you just turn to the left you're two singletons so you must think ahead to your turns so if you're coming up to a turn you both pull up you cross at an angle and then you roll out and then you're in perfect formation and that's what I was failing and this guy came to my room one of my really great course mates Rob and he said man we would like to take you out this evening I thought this is not the best timing I've got my chop right somewhere will you trust me and when he said that, I literally thought, what do I have to lose? And he took me down to this big parade square on our bikes. And the guys had stuck wings onto their bikes. And they basically pretended to be aeroplanes by cycling up and down this parade square, doing these turns, going 30 starboard, 60 port, you know, rotate. And we did all the maneuvers. I couldn't get my head around in the air, but on the ground. And when we did it, I stopped thinking about the minutia, about the detail, about the numbers. And I started to see the bigger picture, to feel where I was meant to be. And I flew the trip next day and I passed it. And basically, my instructor was so blown away by the change in my mindset, in my ability. And I told him what the guys had done. And he said, that is unbelievable. Because actually, there are only a minimal amount of slots available for your course to fly on the next stage. And so actually, there's only six spaces and you're number seven. So one of the guys has probably jeopardized his own career advancement by about a year to get you through. And when he said that, I was so humbled, to be honest, because it just makes you realize what that team is all about. And that unselfish behavior, you know, going the extra mile when you've technically got nothing to gain yourself. But it it worked because when it was reported up through the chain of command, you know, the squadron commander was so blown away by that unbelievable camaraderie he kept one person on as basically a creamy, we call it. And it's when they take the top person out of flying training and they stay on as an instructor, sort of like Top Gun, but in Wales. It's not quite the same. But it meant all of us graduated onto our aircraft type. So it's brilliant. So what happens when you go through
0: that training, you get your big wings, Mandy? Um, what's yeah. the next step?
1: Next stage, basically, you end up uh, being posted onto your aircraft type. So mine was the Tornado GR4, this that, that lovely beast that's behind me and behind you as well. Uh, and I was given two squadron, which was actually the oldest fixed wing squadron in the Air Force. And it was a really wonderful moment to get down to this squadron and fly this beast of an aircraft. I mean, it's sort of like the F-15. is the equivalent aircraft for okay. the America. And... Um, it's a powerful machine. It's unbelievable. I mean, it matches the F-15 on speed, but that's probably about it. Um, actually, we've got better a better range. Um, but apart from that, the F-15 would win in top trumps, I think, if you were to do a competition. <laughs> um, but these, are,
0: these are the ones we see in the movies, Mandy. Uh, forgive me, but are these the yeah. ones you, you actually have refueling in the air?
1: Yeah, you do air-to-air refueling. In fact, um, I was coming back across the Atlantic on September the 11th, having just left the States when... We heard that the Twin Towers were under attack and basically that they'd shut American airspace and we were mid-Atlantic doing air-to-air refueling you know with the hose hanging out the back and the basket right. on it yes and we thought my goodness you know what's happening we had no idea what was going on only that America had shut the airspace for the day and um, yeah we're just told to control the controllables you know what can you do about your situation um, we were very worried that we were going to have a mid-air collision because Suddenly, people didn't have the procedural clearance. Everyone was being turned around. There's sort of quite a lot of chaos in the air, obviously. And so, yeah, we were scanning the airspace with our air-to-air radars just to clear our passageway through the cloud. So, yeah, it was incredible. When
0: you got this assignment and you were flying the beast, as you call it, tell us about your first foray into combat. Did you ever have a moment where you were just between you and me and millions of people listening,
1: (laughs) afraid? It's a really odd one, actually, because I'm often asked, you know, oh, you're not scared. and and I can hand on heart say that that's not the emotion that you feel when you're flying. You don't feel fearful and scared. I tell you when you do feel scared, it's when you land afterwards. And I had one mission that I was in, uh, engaged by a surface-to-air missile over a rack. and we basically did a manoeuvre. We put our countermeasures out. This missile went from being locked on to us. It pulled off, it exploded on our flares about two miles away from the jet. And the this the sky was literally lit up. It was pitch black until that point. And we carried on with the mission and making decisions. Uh, we were working really closely with the Americans out there. We went back. We found a tanker. We were tasked to go and basically prosecute an attack on a target in, in Iraq again. There was so much going on. And I landed after that mission. And I'll be honest, I rang my mum and I went, just to let you know I'm alive. And she said, good, so I'm really pleased we." <laughs> It's like, why are you ringing me? And I said, well, we've just had a bit of an incident here. And she was like, "She, darling, please don't tell me. I don't okay. want to know until you're home, until you're home and safe and well, and then you can tell me. Yeah. But please don't tell me until then. Yeah. Who, who,
0: who, who could actually know what that experience is all about unless somebody's physically gone through it, emotionally, yeah. mentally, and with your skill set and with, your, as you said, with the training that you had, they probably put you in a position and a mindset as you as well. Fear, it doesn't really have a place here at the table.
1: No. And to be honest, it goes back to your training. You're trained by rote. You know, you do so much in the simulator, but also you do it in peacetime, you know, in, not in slow motion. It doesn't quite work like that, but without any real life threats. So when things happen for real, your brain just goes, that's the getting attacked by a surface-to-air missile cassette, boom do the you do your responses by rote and that's something that they try to do so much by cause causing this sort of an automated response from us um and that's what pilots rely on you know the use of checklists the use automatic procedures so that we do things and therefore you can clear up the capacity in your brain to think outside the box for when things that are not standard happen.
0: Did you ever have a situation where you had instrument failure or, or you had no contact with the radar or somehow you were off course without knowing it? Did it ever happen?
1: Yeah, in fact, bizarrely. In fact, the worst one I had was actually not in a military aircraft. It was I was doing my instrument rating to become an airline pilot and we were in a little twin air, twin-engined aircraft and we were on one of the, uh, the, it's called the Channel Islands. So basically, it's these little islands between the UK and France. And we'd flown over there, and I was doing an instrument approach, and you've got all these blinds up so that you can't see out the aircraft. And I looked down, and one of my instruments was frozen completely, and it's the main instrument I'm 100% reliant on. And this is costing me a fortune. It's sort of costing me about $2,000 to do this test. And I'm paying it out of my own money, and that means it's stressful. You can imagine. And I looked down, this instrument's frozen. And I said to my guy that's next to me who's doing the test, I said, At the risk of failing this trip, something's happened to my my instrument and I don't know what's happened. And he said, oh yeah, that is odd. And he tapped it with his knuckle. And I said, no, nothing's happening. He went and he whacked it a bit harder. And as he did, so he smashed it. He actually smashed the instrument and these glass shards all landed on my legs and we both sort of we were so shocked by this and obviously i'm not looking out still i'm still just looking at these instruments and i i started laughing and i've got a really bad laugh coach i mean i'm it was a sort of a stress relief you know but this pressure cooker exploded and he started laughing and he and i I went what he goes uh best i take control and i said oh no actually the instruments come back online i think we'll be fine to carry on and he went great so that was it. So that was a really funny incident, but um, it wasn't funny if I'd, lost, if I'd failed the flight and lost my 2000 Right,
0: I asked you that question because I want to kind of segue into what's happening today. We're going to kind of move around this. What's happening today is I think there's a lot of people, companies and individuals, families, relationships. Who feel that because of all these these shifts in their own personal GPS system, because of the pandemic, because of yeah. the way the world has turned, they feel lost, they feel off course. And you had this kind of training to what to do if this happens, etc. But many people, all of us, really didn't have this training. You know, just it was a very select group of you. What advice could you give companies today, individuals today? They feel off course, and they feel the whole ground shift moving there's nowhere to hold on to they don't feel they have wings they're certainly not flying in fact they've never been more grounded and isolated than ever before what could you what advice could you give for these people
1: well i can only give the advice that i had to give myself to be honest so when just before the coronavirus hit basically i'll be honest business was booming like the picture behind you there i am i'm speaking at huge events globally i am loving it business couldn't have been better Corona hits, events are cancelled. My business literally went from being incredibly lucrative and successful to being nothing. I had lost every bit of income overnight. And I sat there and I felt quite low. And I did go through the whole sort of like curve, you know, the shock, the anger, the resignation. And then I was in my lowest ebb and I thought, you've got to get a grip here. And it makes you realise, you know, the thing that we all need, we all need a sense of purpose. We all need a reason to get up in the morning and we all need resilience to bounce back. And the people and the companies that show that resilience will be the ones that come out of this pandemic successfully and I was I was at this low point and I said to my husband and this was the turning point I said will you stop getting me up so early because what's the point and he just looked at his head and he shook his head and he went Mandy that is not the Mandy I know and I said but what is the point you know these days are really long we've got nothing to do and he said get a grip you know and I'm right so I wrote down a list of all the things that were important to me all the words gratitude, kindliness, but resilience was the one I just kept on coming back to and purpose. So I contacted my local hospital and I said, look, I've always been someone to run towards a crisis. I actually had the Corona bug, I believe very early on before lockdown even happened. And I recovered pretty well from it. I was poorly for about two weeks, but I recovered. I said to them, look, what, what can I do to help? And they said, you know what? We've got a shortage of people working in the laundry. I said, right, that wasn't quite what I was hoping for. You know, I was sort of thinking something a bit more sort of action packed. And they said, no, no, we need people to go into the laundry and fold all of the scrubs and the uniforms for our frontline healthcare workers to wear. I said, right, I'm up for it. My husband and I got jobs as volunteers up at the la- up at the hospital, going in once a week on a shift, literally washing machine, tumble drying them, getting them out and folding them. And we just did that for, I've done that for three months. And you know what? It gave me purpose. And everyone kept saying to me, oh, Mandy, that's so great. You're showing great resilience. You're showing this fantastic. I said, it's also giving me purpose. So we do things, but we do things that are twofold. You give, but in doing so, you feel much better about yourself as well. And it's a really good life lesson that even when the going is tough, look at what you can do to help other people. And I'm not meaning that in a preachy sort of way at all, but it does make a difference. And then I started thinking, well, well, I've still got a great offering, what can I do to get back online? So I started to really look at how to use all the different mediums out there, how to market myself. I took the creative time to finish the book, you know, The Officer Not A Gentleman. Actually, I took it as a positive. I'd like to say I got some really quality time with my family, but I have two teenage boys. That was not quality time, to be brutally honest. Two teenage boys in lockdown, not fun. Um, so yeah, we all do have challenges. But it's about using your time effectively, looking at your strengths and what you can do to utilize them and finding that purpose to bounce back. That's, that's the only advice that I can give only ever from my own experiences.
0: No, that's great. I, I'm so grateful to hear this. And I'm I'm a proponent of having a purpose because if there's no purpose, like you said, there's no reason to get out of bed, then we haven't found the purpose yet. Someone asked me the other day, how do I – how do I find my purpose? If I don't feel I have a purpose, how do I find my purpose? What would you say?
1: I, I think you've got to look at where you want to go. For me, I wanted to give something back. I wanted to be busy and I wanted a purpose. So do you know what? What, what do you enjoy doing? If it's, I said, so my mother-in-law would be a classic example. She said, I don't feel I'm doing anything in lockdown. I said, no, you're not. You're sitting at home. You're not doing anything. But you know what? You have got an amazing family around you who ring you, who are in contact with you other people don't. You're really good at talking. So why don't you make your purpose ringing people that don't have the connections? So we've got to utilize our strengths. If you can't go out in this period, you've still got a telephone and there's lots of people that need to know that someone's going to be ringing them. Someone is looking out for them. So find the thing that you can do, not the things you can't do. That's all I can say,
0: really. Well, well, very, very, very warm and welcome and certainly prudent advice. Thank you for that. I want to like segue back now. We're going to go back to when things started really getting hot out in the Gulf War. And you knew for sure that you were going to actually go on a, on a war mission, if I may. And you were in command. Can you take us through one of your most challenging days or challenging missions?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, one of the, the most challenging, it was it was on the last day that we were out there. Basically, on that occasion, in the run-up to this, we'd been out there for about nearly three months. The artillery routes between Baghdad and al-Basra, so the main motorways, the the railways, they'd always been busy with a lot of action from different surface-to-air missile sites or the huge guns, the anti-aircraft artillery, AAA sites. But once we got down to the Saudi Arabia border, basically, which is quite close to Kuwait, In that time, nothing had ever happened. When nothing has ever happened in any area, be it business or a war zone, your biggest threat is going to be complacency. And as we swept up a target, that's when we were were, um, locked on by a surface-to-air missile. And it was the one that I alluded to earlier, basically. That mission, I was leading my first ever combat mission that night. And I was the, the most junior within the squadron as well so the way it works out in uh, on a squadron and in the military is that they want to build you up as a leader and you've got to start by actually leading so it's great in a tornado because we have a front seat and a back seater so you have a navigator in the back seat so you know your maverick and your goose and so basically you're often twinned with a really experienced navigator if you're quite junior so you've got a nice hierarchy a nice bit of experience that can help you so the business equivalent is can you imagine having a mentor sitting you know a meter or two behind you at all time guiding you so as you're trying to make decisions they're saying what about this have you thought about this and that's fantastic for building up your leadership ability as we swept up this last target we were engaged by Missile All hell broke loose. There's a command and control cell sitting in a a big AWACS aircraft over the Persian Gulf. And he basically says to us to stand by. And we're thinking, well, we're running out of fuel. We've got a target that we might be tasked to go and prosecute an attack on. What do we do? And so we're taught a decision-making model. It's called DODAR, and it's really great. Anyone that struggles to make decisions, basically, run through DODAR, diagnose the problem, and share it amongst the team. So everyone's on the same starting point. You ask your team for options without the leader ever saying what they think first. So I'd say, coach, what do you think? You give me your input. I listen to everyone's point of view and then I, as the leader, make the decision. You then assign the tasks and then you review it and think, what's changed? Because so often something has intrinsically changed, but you've not picked it up. So you run through Dodar quickly, which is what I did. We were running out of fuel. We headed into Saudi Arabia to find the air-to-air refueling tanker. And we got down there. And it wasn't our British one. Ours had broken, but the good old Americans helped us out. They had launched one of their aircraft, carrier, sorry, um, refueling aircraft called a KC-135, but I'd never refueled on one before. So can you imagine doing something for the first time in a war zone in the middle of the night when you've just been shot at?
0: In midair. air? <laughs>
1: In mid-air, yeah. And basically, it's got a completely different refuelling system. I mean, the Brit tankers, they have a basket hanging out, hose hanging out with a basket on the back, and you are the one that's responsible for putting your little probe into the basket. But on the KC-135, you have a drone operator, and basically, they sit at the back of the aeroplane, you formate at the back, and then they're meant to do all the work. Well, I'd never done it before, so I said to my boss, and he, my boss was in my formation, he was my number two, I said, sir, may I have a go? And he said, yeah, crack on. So I had two attempts and I actually wasn't successful. And so I said to my backseater, I'm going to stop. And he actually said, carry on. And I thought, if I do carry on, it's going to prevent the rest of the team from having a go. So I actually overruled him, which was a really monumental decision for a junior pilot to make. I moved across onto the wing. I let the rest of my formation refuel. My number two, the boss and the senior executive officer, who's like the number three. They refueled, they were successful. I ran out of fuel and I had to divert back to my base with the number four when the formation number two went back into a rack, located the target they dropped their weapons got a direct hit on target and returned back to base and I'll be honest I landed feeling like a complete and utter failure I was devastated I felt like I'd failed at the final hurdle and I got out this jet and you can imagine it's just dawn is coming through it's about four o'clock in the morning I'm knackered I'm absolutely shattered and the first thing that happens was that my nap put its hand on my shoulder and went that was a really good call and basically it came out that he had been really emotionally involved he'd been a trials officer and his whole previous tour had been the trials of this weapon we were carrying it had never been dropped in any war zone and he was desperate to be the first person to drop this weapon in anger in a war zone and suddenly there he was faced with a pilot that wasn't actually succeeding on the mission and he was emotionally involved saying carry on but he said you made the right call You weren't emotionally involved and you made the right decision well done mandy my shoulder starts to inflate like the the, uh, bouncy castle when the air's going back in it and he sort of goes and then i held the debrief you know and we always debrief it's something that they always do we always do in aviation we're so good at it you run through this funnel asking questions what happened what are the facts why did it happen what's the cause but you're trying to get to the cure So you run through this funnel using facilitated open questions and you get to the answers. And then you say, right, these are the three or four points that we can take away to improve on for next time or repeat if it was something that was really good. And um, it was interesting because we were called up right at the end by the commander-in-chief and he wanted to speak to the formation leader, which was me. He just said, I just want to let you know it was a direct hit. You had this really successful mission and, and congratulations. And I put the phone down and I thought, yeah, you know what? I've made some really big decisions as a junior pilot and I did so because I was truly empowered by a wonderful leader in the form of my boss and it's a lovely story for business because how often do businesses tell people what to do and then when things get more complex often the leader leaps in and takes control but actually we never get learning then you never get true empowerment if someone basically is doing something they feel that someone's just going to step in and they always back off. But if you take ownership of your decisions, and actually I felt I had that night, then you can grow as a leader. And it was the best insight into leadership I have ever witnessed. And I had it as a gift given to me that evening.
0: And not only that, but he, uh, when he did this to you and he acknowledged his trust, he turned up your loyalty button Right up to past 10, didn't
1: it? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, loyalty is everything, isn't it? And that's one thing that I've noticed with all the businesses that I've been talking to since lockdown came in. It's interesting. They've been trying to build this empowerment and ownership of decisions so much. And they've got all the models, all the leadership pillars, all the values. And here we are in lockdown. And all of the managers and leaders are giving all their team all the, the different tasks to do. And they're having to let them get on with it. And they're saying, we've tried to do this for years, but it's never quite worked. And ironically, in lockdown, it's working brilliantly. And actually, people are feeling more empowered because they are being trusted to get on with it because we haven't got someone sitting on our shoulder looking at what we're doing all the time.
0: Would never have happened without this. So we have to really appreciate the fact that we all had to get off the merry-go-round at a certain point, all of us unanimously, without any consultation, if we liked it or not, and see how business some businesses have responded to it quite well. There's still, you know, there's still the spin of the GPS signals. Uh, some people are still lost. I'm hoping that some of the things that you said today will reach more people because I think what you said is really true to no matter what it is, maybe, maybe you have to find a new purpose. Yeah. a purpose. That, yeah, maybe when you talked about folding laundry, you know, maybe we have to fold the past and we have to move on and, see how we can create a new future. Certainly this forum today, you know, I'm honored to have such a great speaker uh, with us today. And yet, you know, as a speaker myself, this is a new forum for us. We didn't have this going on before this. So we all have to find different ways to grow and to evolve and to learn. Mandy, I'm going to ask you, please, just to kind of tell us a little bit about this wonderful book that you were able to finish. I'm so happy that, that you're here and the timing is great. Uh, and I want, I want you to talk to virtual class, please, of eight-year-old girls. There's 30 of them in the class. Tell them a little bit about your book and what you think, that the message that you have for them.
1: So, an officer, not a gentleman. Basically, why did I write it? Well, the reason I wrote it initially was because everyone told me to. I wasn't ever going to write a book. And I started on my speaking and everyone said, <gasps> have you got a book? And I kept saying, no, no, no. And then I started to say not yet. And the second you say not yet, it opens up the possibility of. And so basically, I think that's a really great lesson for you girls out there, you eight year olds, when you when someone says, can you do something and you say no, you just say not yet. And once you say not yet, you'll think maybe I can and basically it just grew from there really three years in the making I worked really closely with a great friend of mine who is a fantastic journalist he's the wordsmith so the two of us worked in a great collaboration together to really capture the voice and make sure that when people were reading it the voice would come out and you know what that's the one thing anyone that knows me says Mandy I feel like I have been sleeping with you every night as I go to bed reading the book and I was like not sure that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, not, I didn't have that intention, really. Didn't have that intention, but you know what? At least it means that we captured what I wanted to say. But I just wanted to, to, to basically, what I'm finding fascinating is I have got young girls that are contacting me going, this is the most inspirational book I've ever read. And I have got business leaders, literally chief executives of banks, ringing me or not really me, texting me and coming through on linkedin saying this is the most inspirational book i've ever read and i think do you know what i love about it it's the fact when i tried to get a publishing deal and by the way i didn't get one so i self-published i've done the whole thing off my back, own back i didn't get a publishing deal because they the publishers believed that they quote and i'm going to quote you plain books are for a male audience who have no interest in a woman's story again and that, again and i thought Again, I am so tired of being put into a box and you know what they said but we need to know who's your audience I said my audience is an eight-year-old girl all the way through to a hundred-year-old gentleman you know what everyone that's reading it is loving it and I am blown away by the response it's having it went to number one in on Amazon two days ago in the aviation category so I now have a number one bestseller I can actually say that Yeah, and, and I couldn't believe it. Kindle, actually, the price has dropped to one, £1.99, which a couple of dollars, which is phenomenal, really, because Amazon are recognising that it's selling really well. Yeah, I've been overcome by and humbled, actually, by the emails I've been getting, just saying it's, in, it's just reinvigorated all my memories of when I was this. It's, it's basically reignited passion that I have of doing something, not necessarily flying, because it, you don't have to be into aviation to read this book. And that's the really lovely thing. It's just a story about a young lady at the age of 13 whose mum was a teacher, whose dad ran a carpet fitting business. Anyone can do it if you are willing to work hard enough and you believe that you can.
0: Because if you dream it and you believe it, believe
1: it, boom.
0: Nixon says you can Can do do it." it. Awesome. Great storytelling. Wonderful to meet you. I salute you for all the resistance that you've had to overcome all your life as a young woman even now to hear about your story. I'm absolutely certain you'll have a publishing deal on your next go around. And I look forward as coach MJ to somehow collaborating with you in the future to do something jointly.
1: Well, that sounds fantastic. I would love to. In fact, a lot of uh, people over in America have actually connected to me and said, please, can you come over and do a book tour? I'm like, Let's sort it out. I'll be all over it. I've been wanting to get over to America to speak for years. And actually, this is the opportunity to do it. And it would just be great to connect with so many. I've always loved visiting the States. And actually, I'd love to come over and actually share my story with as many people as I can.
0: Thank you. Well, definitely, for sure, at Mission Impossible, uh, you have a huge fan here. And for our listening audience, I'm absolutely sure that they got your message today. And thumbs up to you. Thank you so much, Mandy.
1: Thank you, too. Thanks so much, Coach. Honestly, it's
0: been an absolute pleasure to meet you tonight. God bless. Thank you for joining The Real Mission. We welcome you to explore the next real mission I'm Possible with Coach MJ. Meet ordinary people who have achieved the extraordinary. Like, share, and comment
1: to inspire others today.